keep talking in your okay, voice. Okay, I will keep talking. One of the best things are wolves. I think these levels are pretty good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Our working title is something like... Thinking about or rethinking conservation through a social justice lens. Mm-hmm. A.K.A. wolves will eat your borderlands. <laughs> Contributor to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, working out of Portland, Oregon, uh, looking to talk about conservations in terms of people and movements. And here with me today is my good friend Kimberly Fanshire, who I've worked with at Bark, which is a nonprofit here in Portland, and on just being awesome in general in the community to help uh, keep us all educated and up to speed on where this environmental movement should be going, and if we are getting there in a timely manner. Kimberly is a recent MA in literature at Portland State University, uh, as well as a writer and local activist. Her goal is to use writing and critical reading as community-building, anti-oppressive tools. Her research interests involve uh, place-based rhetorics. She writes about wolves in Oregon, pop country radio, internet comment sections, and Frontier Violence to unpack the discourses of belonging, home, identity, and borders. And we're going to get into some of that today. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So you write a lot. You have a lot of different blogs and things, and I've Mm -hmm. kind of delved back into those recently. And one thing that I really like about your writing is that it's both academic and abstract, um, it's really artistic, and then there's also a lot of scholarship in there, and it's it's invigorating. It's really exciting to read content that can be kind of challenging, but kind of interspersed with a lot of personality and creativity. So, want to tell me a little bit about your writing process, your research process? Yeah, well, I like to hear that a lot, because I think my goal as a writer is to talk about complex and difficult, interesting things... Um, those are the things that interest me most, the things that are, end up being really difficult to, to write about and to unpack. Um, but I have no interest in writing only for an elite or academic audience. That's mm-hmm. not fun. Um, and I also think that a lot of the conventions of academic writing trample on voice and don't consider... consider um, Voice to be a really essential element to interesting theory. Um, I think that has a lot to do with conventions of uh, patriarchal conventions in the history of the academy and writing and what we consider smart and intellectual and stuff. Um, But I also want, I think the ideas that I've learned from being in academia and from being in uh, sort of elitist intellectualist places are ideas that people who are not in those places have the ability to understand. You don't only get to learn about really cool, fascinating theory that has built our world if you go to grad school, right? Like, you can learn about it through your life experiences. And a lot of my favorite theorists are people who have been challenging those type of things with class critiques and queer critiques for a long time. 
I just happened to encounter them only in higher education because that's where I found them. But but I think lot, those ideas could be really useful to lots of people, and we should write about them in ways that are accessible as well as challenging. So that's more of what I think about than um, what I write about. But I try and I try and um, consider my. Uh, Poetics and voice and the ability to describe things in a way that's maybe sometimes resistant or challenging to not always be a bad thing. Um, it's something that I have, critis- have been criticized for a lot as a writer is by using like unlikely words, by writing phrasing something in an abstract way that makes it impossible to understand until I re-explain it or read it out loud <laughs> or something. But I'm like, I don't think this is necessarily... I don't think it's necessarily wrong or bad that maybe all my professors or teachers didn't understand what I was saying. It's maybe important to try and say it in a different way. Is there any kind of one phrase in particular that you remember getting kind of criticized around and you thinking to yourself, well, that's exactly what I meant, and so I'm just going to keep saying it that way? I learned that, like, a word, metis, (laughs) which is a Greek word, uh, in one class in grad school and then I and I was like this is an amazing word this is the best way to explain something and then I used it in another paper and the other professor was like this doesn't make any sense you can't use that word here and I was like but I just learned it <laughs> at your school <laughs> this is the best way to describe it like if someone doesn't know the word why don't they just look it up why am I expected to use different words to make them understand it and she was like well I mean that's a choice you're making <laughs> but you always have to understand that if you're too difficult, then people might just stop reading you, and they might not look up the word, and they might, you know, just mm. stop. <laughs> so, so that's a that's a balance to to work on. Well, you write about a lot of different topics: feminism, wolves, Alt National Park Service, <laughs> uh, country music, public lands, all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> Let's well, start with wolves because that's yeah. what I know you best for. Yeah. How did you get into researching wolves? I know we worked together on the Oregon um, wolf management plan for the state of Oregon and the listing process for the wolf in, mm-hmm. in Oregon. Yeah, so I've been interested in wolves for a long time because they are really compelling. A lot of people are interested in wolves. Wolves, They're our favorite charismatic megafauna. They're romantic. They're more often more compelling and engaging than lichen or um, <laughs> um, like microorganisms. Or, right, everyone likes lichen, but lichen doesn't pull that many people into environmentalism. <laughs> or maybe it does. I don't know. Um, but uh, I, you know, I grew up in Oregon. I always knew that I lived in a place that used to have predators and it didn't really anymore because that's how the world works you know the world's supposed to have predators and I have environmentalist parents who instilled those ideas in me and like read me Farley Moat and stuff as a kid and (laughs) radicalized me as a young child by enjoying um uh uh, predator ecology and respecting the not as pretty parts of nature in which some things kill other things but I also grew up while wolves were being reintroduced into the United States. Wolves were reintroduced in Yellowstone National Park in 1996. They were let loose there, and since then, those wolves have spread across the western continent into Idaho, Montana, 
eventually Oregon and Washington in 2009 officially to stay. Some of them crossed over before that, but that was that. So I grew up watching this struggle and this really exciting recovery. Um, Growing up in this, in the nineties, it was a time in which like a lot of things about the environmental movement were going better than they were, say, when it was first being built in the 60s. The 90s and those were, were pretty good. Yeah, but then in other ways, it was the um, it was logging and owl fights in Oregon. It was a bunch of... It was learning about climate change and realizing that things seemed much bigger and more daunting than we thought. It was learning more and more about global issues of, like, the mass scale of pollution. And everything seemed like nothing could get better. I think it still felt kind of hopeless, you Mm -hmm. know? And Wolf Recovery was the first thing I saw coming back. Like, this was actually working. This was a victory. This was something that was returning. And so that made it interesting and exciting. But also... Wolves in Oregon have always been very controversial, right? So I was just, as soon as I knew anything about wolves, I also knew about who loved them and who hated them. So that conflict and learning more about the world around me and figuring out why people had those strong ideas fueled me and made me really care about it. Well, the project that I worked with you on was kind of in direct response to educating Bark supporters about the management plan and the potential for the wolf wolf to get delisted from the state, which it then did. Mm-hmm. Um, which also we knew would happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we knew it would happen because of this history. Yeah. And then in in getting into that history, you unearthed some things that actually say a lot about the uh, human social constructs in, in the state um, government and policy and politics. Mm-hmm. And you want to just jump in? What did you find out about the history of Oregon and looking at wolf history? So one thing that I really came to really fully realize is that you can't understand wolves now without understanding a lot about American history. And American history is the history of settler colonialism, otherwise known as westward expansion. Manifest destiny. (laughs) Um... So those histories are intricately linked with one another. Wolves, as many writers have written um, before me, wolves have long been sort of considered to be this weird symbol that Euro-Americans and white settlers were confronting as the haunting mythos of the wild outside of their realms of civilization. And there are, like, a lot of books and stories from early America, from the 17th, 18th centuries, 19th centuries, too. Um, And also, like, still today, (laughs) still today, we see wolves serving as this representation of Native people and of something that is vanishing um, or, or, like, being, like, a the noble savage idea, Mm -hmm. uh, representing that, but then also representing, like, the threat to what the white settler colonist brings to the world, which is livestock. Order. <laughs> Order. Uh, a new conception of property mm-hmm. that is based on ownership and fences and putting livestock within those fences and using them for one's own and developing a like, nuclear family-based idea of mass capitalism. Mm-hmm. 
Um, wolf is so. a threat to all. Wolf is a threat thing. to all the things, and so like when we look at when we look at stories and myths and folk tales, we see the wolves being a threat to that to Euro Americans, um, and then we also see it literally because we start to develop bounty systems as some of the first state management systems that build the new idea of the nation. Um, I looked at, I tried to find out when the, when the first wolf bounty was, and it's like 12 years after the establishment, maybe it's 13 years of Plymouth Colony, then they enact a bounty law. Immediately. So yeah, so it's like as soon as they get things going, they're like, okay, now we are starting to have a functioning government. What will this government be comprised of? And the first thing people do is make bounty laws, which means, of course, if you go kill a predator or something that is seen as a vermin or a threat to the society, then you will be rewarded for it by money that is pooled from taxes that other people have put in. So you can kill animals that are perceived as threats and then get rewarded for it. So it's a way to make money. Um, It's a way to ostensibly help your society and then be rewarded for it. Also, you'll always see that bounties have different prices depending on who you are bringing the pelt in. If you're a white man, it will be, you know, 50 cents. If you are a native man, it will be 25 cents. Um, You usually see demarcations for that. Or if you're another person, uh, it just depends on where you are, but it always has that kind of hierarchy where some people are awarded more for the same work. Uh, And then if you look at the westward expansion as it goes across the country, You'll see that same pattern occur. It's like a way of staking out territory is establishing bounty systems. So that is an interesting piece of how the country was formed. And then when you get to Oregon, uh, I did not know this, but I found in my research that one of our first meetings of Oregon government, rather um, European-American construction of Oregon as a place with those boundaries and their idea of what government was, is called the Shampooey Wolf Meetings and the Jervis Wolf Meetings in 1843 or 1841 and 1843, in which all these people got together ostensibly to develop bounty laws. So that was like the first occasion of Oregon government (laughs) was called Wolf Meetings. Um, And they did establish bounty laws, but when I researched it further, I found out that actually the bounty system stuff was kind of a cover for all these men who were big property owners already to start to organize together to create the new government that would be most advantageous for them because there was like, like Oregon wasn't a state yet. There was still struggles with different ownership from other countries and territories and what they should do. So they're like, let's get together as landowners. Let's figure out what's best for us, but shh, don't tell anyone. Let's say it's just about wolves. And so that was a nice little parallel for me about how whenever we're talking about wolves, we're also talking about something else. <laughs> and in that way, it was really literal. Um, but in some ways, it's more metaphoric. <laughs> Do you see the... Maybe the kind of back and forth that we are experiencing in wolf reintroduction and just rebuilding those populations as a metaphor for anything? Well, I see it as... Um, a, like a, a reflare up of those existing tensions that have never been resolved because while the Western mythos rests on the romanticism of a vanishing, that's in quotes, <laughs> native person mm-hmm. or in, in vanishing indigeneity from the landscape, that's not really true. That didn't happen. 
Um, we were living on occupied land where people who belong to that land and um, it belongs to them, like they didn't disappear. They still exist. <laughs> um, that taking over something as being part of this big natural evolutionary process of Western colonialism and capitalism being a natural evolution. Like that's not really true. <laughs> that is a myth that we all learned and how we see the world. And so now we're seeing some resistance to that narrative. And so the same tensions flare up again. Um, and then also I think that it has new ways of manifesting itself. And, and now as anyone knows, we have a lot of xenophobia going on, a lot of um, craziness about borders, a lot of fear based on outsiders and of the idea of there being like defined borders that make us safe and the world is full of scary intruders and foreigners that might infiltrate our borders and then threaten us. And so in the rhetoric you see now about wolves, it mirrors exactly the rhetoric you see about people who are shouting racist things about immigrants or refugees from the Middle East or from Mexico or from Central America. Like, it just echoes it exactly. Yeah. And, um, like, one critique you'll see a lot from people who are upset about wolves coming back to Oregon is that they decided to believe the narrative that these wolves that they've reintroduced are different from the native wolves, the good wolves that used to live here, but then naturally died out because they can't work with people really well. They believe that there's a different kind of wolf that is a Canadian wolf that is bigger, more, like, <laughs> ferocious, more, like, willing to kill things for no reason. Like, it's the beast that kills for fun. Um, and uh, they took these big, bigger, scarier wolves from Canada and brought brought those ones to Yellowstone and released them. So now the wolves we have here in this like very false idea are, are different and they're bad and they're scary and they're mean and they're criminals. Which like that's what I hear. I hear like criminality, criminally marked creatures, and like that's not true. <laughs> they did get the wolves from Canada that they brought back here, but they're from British Columbia, and wolves do not. Um, have nationality. <laughs> like, a Canadian wolf is not different from a wolf in the United States, necessarily. <laughs> um, you know, there are, there are subspecies and genetic variations based on landscape features and bioregions, but, like, they're not different. <laughs> they're, they're not. Um, but then reading that, it's like, it's what you hear about people deciding that there are a bunch of, quote, illegal immigrants, unquote, from Mexico who are all criminals who are coming over to do scary things and hurt people, and they're naturally more violent and naturally worse and naturally bad. So, um, oh yeah, and then another piece that is ridiculously a parallel is they'll frame the wolves then as being these kind of like welfare recipients, as being like recipients of federal big government, like, big bad liberal government beneficiaries. Just, like, these, like, terrible recipients of welfare who are just leeches on the system and <laughs> feeding off of it while there are simple, hard-working people just trying to raise their cows. I mean, it's um. striking. You know, these <laughs> yeah. are some, I think, really concerning lapses in judgment and just cognition of the, of the issues and the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 
in terms of wolf management, the solutions that have been put forward have been difficult and maybe even short-sighted and just definitely complicated in terms of jurisdictions and responsibilities of, you know, where resources are going to come from to put this stuff into place. Mm -hmm. And I see that another parallel there in how we're, you know, going to address some of these larger social issues that we can see mirrored in, in the kind of rhetoric that you're finding specifically around wolves. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that there is something that the environmental or the conservation community can learn from how challenging it has been to bring wolves back to the landscape that is important or valuable in the bigger kind of human social landscape as well? Well, I think... I think there are some promising things we've learned, and I think there are also some really big mistakes that have been made with wolf management that we can also learn from. I think what we've seen in Oregon with how our wolf plan worked out and how these, like, (laughs) irreparable feeling divides and conflicts exist between sides of the issue is that the, the management plan wasn't about it wasn't really about ecology and like this is a conversation that we've had a lot it was about compromise and trying to make as many people as happy as possible and still fund the department of fish and wildlife which like doesn't have any money and isn't a great functioning agency at the moment because their funding comes from sources that don't really exist like they did in the 70s or the 60s and Um, So they have to get funding from people, and so they have to appease those people. They also have to appease the environmentalists, because environmentalists are really rabid. (laughs) Maybe that's a terrible (laughs) analogy or descriptor to use, but um, whatever. Like, they're tireless. Like, they will not stop, and they will file lawsuits until the end of time. So you have to... (laughs) Like, work with them a little bit, which I think is great. You know, I think it is important and necessary to do that. I think otherwise they wouldn't comply with any environmental concerns unless environmentalists were so, like, dogged. Um, but, but then when you get is, like, still these huge social divides, people who hate each other, right. who, who despise each other and, like, are full of rage for one another. And then you get, um, like, a policy that doesn't really work for anyone, like, you still have people feeling that their eco- economics are under threat, even if some of them are liars. Um, <laughs> some of them are, you know, some are people who are living in fear and have more legitimate reasons to kind of feel unsupported by their government, but they're using this issue as an emotional point. So they're still probably, they're probably, like, their children are in need of better schools and of better infrastructure in rural areas. There's, they're not going to get those, but they can get wolf removal so they'll do that and like feel a little bit taken care of maybe um even though that isn't really the biggest threat to anybody um and then you also just have environmentalists who aren't happy because the ecology isn't going to be restored by having what do we have now like 150 wolves something like that it's not good enough you know like we should have 2000 (laughs) like (laughs) And, and their idea of having low low numbers of breeding pairs necessary to get wolves well, taken off the Endangered Species Act is just not... It's not eco- ecologically sound, and so it's not doing anything we want it to do. So nobody's happy, and nothing is repaired, and we have bigger divides between rural people who are probably going through the same struggle as 
low-wage workers in urban areas, but we're feeling more separate than each other than united on fronts that we, we actually could be united on. Right. And this is all kind of undergirded by this cultural mythos of this threatening individual mm-hmm. or this threatening community of wolves or or people that are somehow going to, you know, usurp your rights to right. provide for your family, to establish yourself in the landscape. Somehow, like, really just believing in coexistence. Like, believing that coexistence means I need to kill the wolf in order to let me survive, as opposed to we all need to make drastic changes for one another. So I think that the failing point was going for compromise when we need to unearth huge things to change how we see it change how we see it you know we have to change we can't just change um like we can't make minor changes and hope that it'll be fixed i don't think maybe we can i don't know but uh, i think that we have to say okay well we shouldn't have livestock mass-produced industrial cattle livestock in oregon anymore if we want oregon to not be like a huge floodplain that doesn't have any um riparian systems that work like we shouldn't have them anymore and that is a big thing and that is a lot of change um and that all and we should also have to reconsider what private property means and what people are allowed to land and how we what what land people are allowed to own and live on and use and what how we regulate those things so they're just like really big things we have to change and on the other side of that though where i think wolves are still promising is that um, even though we're fighting them, I don't think the wolves are going to die. <laughs> like, I think they're going to live. I don't, like, we're not going to go through a mass extermination poisoning campaign where, like, we employ Forest Service employees to go out and poison all the springs with strychnine. Well, are we already seeing new policies coming out of the administration that are, you know, doing things like allowing for hunting of grizzlies and... Yeah, I guess that's like true. That. And also, I guess, like, I was having more faith on that point when it was, like, a year ago. <laughs> So, like, I kind of go into that <laughs> argument, and now I'm like, well, maybe I feel less secure about those possibilities. But also, I just, I just don't think we're going to focus on, like, killing wolves like we did before, and it's not easy. It's hard. I just have a lot of faith in them as a really resilient species that can re- withstand a lot, but I don't know. Um, but then, because of the huge cultural shift that allowed the, us to even imagine reintroducing them in the first place, like, that gives me faith and hope. Because up until the 1950s and 60s, it was unthinkable to think of the wolves as anything but the beast of waste and desolation, which is how Theodore Roosevelt describes them. And we think of Theodore Roosevelt as being like a conservationist president, too. <laughs> Even though, like, what, yeah. Um, but, like, he did a lot, like, you know, he did a lot of national parks and la da da. But that's how he described wolves. Everyone thought of them as this. Um, but then that, that rhetoric shifted for some people. And, and totally changed the way we saw them enough to create a movement to reintroduce them. So if we can have that kind of dramatic and extraordinarily radical shift, then that gives me a lot of hope for possibility. And in doing that type of really big reorienting, unearthing, restructuring kind of stuff. Right. And we have some pretty significant and immediate problems to solve around. And and I want to get back to what you mentioned about what does private mean and in terms of land ownership and what does public mean? Um, and clearly there's some fires, some wind under the fire of, of privatization and transferring public lands 
uh, and there's a lot of people with a lot of power <laughs> that kind of ascribe to those to those shifts um, and those types of values. That I think is a threat not only to obviously a threat to wolves and wildlife. Um, I would think it's a threat also to vulnerable communities and marginalized communities living in rural places or living anywhere where mm-hmm. they want to you know have access to wild places. Um, do you have any thoughts on this privatization scenario and where you think we need to bolster our resources to keep it from becoming a reality? I think privatization is a really big threat. We've seen it be a movement before, and in the West it is always kind of a pressing issue. It's one of our big divides. I think it's really frightening. I think that it often, like, I think a lot of Oregonians and a lot of, like, I don't know, there's a certain kind of Oregonian I'm thinking of, which isn't all Oregonians, obviously, but there's a kind who really like being here because they're libertarian-ish minded. They like not being told what to do. And I think the idea of privatization appeals to people who are just like, let me have my weed and my guns and do what I want. Stay away from my land. Let me run it. You know? And so it can seem sort of like a compelling idea, especially when we have a federal government that is bent on like just burning all of our land to the ground, basically. Like we just have like a Captain Planet villain like trying to just destroy everything in the world so it's like uh, yeah ownership of like pot farmers seems <laughs> better than that but but I feel like that that's kind of a ruse because um, or, or like a feeling like it's better for states to manage land because uh, the federal government is terrible and like oh we should transfer, thing, transfer things to locally owned staff because the states should have more power um but that is just often this veiled way of privatizing land by selling off pieces of it to resource extractors who have no claim here, no need to make the land good and livable here, and just want to make as much money off of it as possible. And that, as you pointed out, like that's always going to hurt the most marginalized people. Like if someone is going to build an oil pipeline through stuff, like it's going to be where it's going to be where poor people live, you know, like it's going to, and if they're going to build a pollute, like a plant that pollutes something or that does this or like whatever it does, it's going to hurt people who are already vulnerable and marginalized and other people will have the ability to move away from it or leave it or get clean water in another way or do something like that. But some people won't. And that is scary. And we all have to be really willing to, to understand that as a threat to everybody and to move against it. Um, I don't know exactly how or where we have to focus to do that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Back to coexistence. And I think what you said at, in that moment was that people are kind of naturally have a proclivity against coexistence or have an understanding of coexistence that makes it feel like that is a compromise in which they lose a lot. Yeah, or then people who think coexistence is like a coexist bumper sticker. we're like I mean coexistence might actually be something which you lose a lot and if you were in a position of power if you were like we were living in a you know patriarchal white supremacy so if you are a person who benefits from those systems Mm -hmm. then to actually coexist and to actually move toward justice (laughs) you have to 
you might be giving some things up. So now I'm imagining a scenario where in order to defend, you know, the very existence of public lands, the environmental, the conservation community and, um, you know, maybe specifically the, the big predator restoration community has to coexist with the hunting community and the fishing community. I don't know. The other yeah. aspect, the other public lands users who might not agree with him on yeah. issues like big predator issues. But like hunters should love big predators. How do we coexist when, <laughs> how do we coexist in with these two groups or what kinds of, I guess, you know, with the idea that coexistence might mean you're compromising and losing a lot. What is the environmental mm-hmm. conservation community willing to lose in order to coexist, uh, you know, in, in this effort to keep public lands around? I mean, they have to lose, and this is something that I think they've been working on, their, like, commitment to the values of the bourgeoisie, because a lot of environmental funding which comes values? from... Um, I don't know. I guess, like, the ways in which some people feel safe. I, and I'm not sure exactly what that, what that is losing, but, like, they have to lose... It can't just... Environmentalism can't be a place that's only comfortable for people who are, like middle-aged and white and wearing North Face jackets. (laughs) Like, it has to have a more um, economic justice drive behind it. And it has to be welcome to changes into looking into having leadership from other people who aren't just like, I'm a dude who used to be a lawyer and now I'm an environmental guy. You know, it's like, those people are wonderful, but, you know, like, we should maybe try to find other people from other community organizations who can be leaders in it and to reframe the structure of it maybe um to have the focus be more about environmental justice as opposed to more easy to swallow ideas like don't kill the bumblebees you know like these things are all good and they all work together but like does that make sense it has to i think it does i mean i i think one thing that i feels an enormous barrier is just the idea from the mainstream conservation um, voice that you know humans are a problem in these environments that human you know mm-hmm. and we obviously we have impacts in, in some situations we've completely ruined things altogether mm-hmm. but the idea that the solution is to kind of rope things off again with the barriers mm-hmm. um, and the fences and the borders and say, you know, you're really only allowed to be part of this movement or to go to this place or to experience, you know, this environmental community if you are doing these particular activities and in this way that makes it seem like you were never here. And that's just, number one, not possible. And I also just don't think that it's, uh, you know, ethically sound to argue that keeping humans off of the landscape 100% 100% is the best solution to whatever ecological issues are there. That idea is also like fundamentally false and it relies on a pretty false ideology of American environmental romanticism, which is that which is like the John Muir idea of the wilderness being this like beautiful pure place. Um and that, 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 that rhetoric is really compelling to people, and I understand why it feels emotionally resonant, that you're like, oh, 
to go to the wilderness, you lose yourself and become part of this pure place. It's, um, it's like commune with nature, as if nature is a separate thing from people. But what that, what those ideas do is they suggest that John Muir was the person, the first person to be in Yosemite, which like obviously he wasn't. Even though he kicked everyone else out of Yosemite um, and right. said terrible things about the people who had lived there for thousands um, of years. Right, or like. Um, thinking that, oh, all we have to do is just keep people out of Oregon, and then it will be a good place. Go back to California. Um, yeah, or, or all these ideas, that pri- they're all about the wilderness being the separate, pure, untouched thing that people have never touched. And that is not true. That's there, erasure. Yeah, so like, well. this is the erasure of the entire thousands of, thousands of years that people lived in all the places that are now the United States and we're different places and how people have shaped the environment. The environment in nature isn't just this like abstract thing that existed alone on a cloud until white people came here in like 1492 and then suddenly like built houses on it. Like <laughs> forests and the rivers and landscapes and prairies and all these things have been, have humans have been a part of their evolution and their change and their development Forever. I mean, like, not forever, because not when there weren't people, obviously. <laughs> but, like, since there were people, they've been affecting the environment. So it's just like a... So do you think that the conservation movement can let go of that? Mm. Can they sacrifice? Will they? Or sh- I guess I'll say should, just to make it fair. But then also, can we let go of that? That has been the ideal that has been the reason for fighting for this stuff was to make it go back to the way it was, to yeah. not take it, to not acknowledge the you know the relationship between indigenous people and all of these different ecologies for thousands of years, and to say we you know there's a line somewhere in history, and what it was before then was like untouched, and that's what we're trying to get back to. And I mean, that's where a lot of the resources um, are coming. That's what the big funders want to see I mean how are we going to what are we going to sacrifice in order to let go of that myth if that's one of the bigger things we need to do I mean right like I guess sacrifice funding (laughs) Um, which is easier said than done Um, like I feel in some ways that there is hope for that because I was able to come to figure these ideas out because I read things that other people had written that helped me come to these ideas. So people have been writing about it, especially in the past, you know, few decades. There's been in academia, there's a whole thing about wilderness theory and all those challenging those ideas and eco-criticism and challenging what nature means and all that stuff. And even though that exists in a really like tiny snippet of the world it does trickle down, you know, like, like I learned it and then I can, <laughs> I know, like terrible <laughs> theory, but you know, like people who are teachers who are going to be teachers in high schools now have gotten more critical, challenging ideas about a lot of stuff than the people who taught us learned about. Mm. So, so like, that's the way that I think like people write about stuff. Generational to some extent. Yeah, but not like necessarily it'll just get better with every generation but I think in the past couple of decades people have been doing a lot of good work and it, like just other people haven't had access to it and so maybe there are people willing to kind of break through those barriers of access now in ways there weren't before. And then also I feel like like just more in like some ways I, I feel like I'm 
when I think about the sheltered and nice parts of the internet and the world, I'm like, wow, look at all these people learning about feminism when they're teenagers. All these people learning about racism when they're teenagers, you know, like learning about institutional and systemic inequality as younger people because we have more social justice internet spaces that I didn't have access to. Yeah. So now, like, you know, like writing for everyday feminism, it's like write to your 14-year-old cousin, you know? So it's like there's accessible material where people can learn these ideas and then start to want to have a more justice-oriented view in conservation or like even calling it conservation is like a weird thing to do right right (laughs) because of that so so then uh, that makes me think it might be possible and then also in terms of climate justice we're seeing different types of funding uh and different groups like rising tide and you know where they're like no we need to recognize capitalism as a root cause of this stuff we don't want to be beholden to the ethos and the needs of big corporations who fund us in order to do environmental work. We want to just be locally based, radical grassroots people who are working in their communities and understanding them and building it from the ground up that way and doing that kind of work that's like connected in a vast network as opposed to connected in this global corporation style environmentalist nonprofit. So I see those things happening and I'm like, Hey, maybe, maybe we can do that. (laughs) Well, I think we can, and, you know, place-based activism and that sense of belonging and responsibility is a huge motivator for for communities, whether they're working on environmental issues or issues of housing or public health, you know, if you're talking about a place that you're familiar with and that you have a vested interest in and that you have access to where the leadership is accessible and things like that. Uh, that's that's where real change can happen, I think. And you don't have to ascribe to these larger mythos if you're focusing on the things that you have real tangible, you know, interactions with. It will be really hard to keep some false mythic going um, when every day mm-hmm. that you go somewhere and interact with something, you, you see what's really happening. And so in terms of... so. To bring it back to predators and wolves in particular, there are many places in the country where wolves will probably never come back. There's no room for them now. Yeah, they're not going to go to a city. They're not going to go to the city. But across the West, you know, maybe even some of the central part of the nation, Mm -hmm. there's room for wolves. And how are we going to help communities? You know, not that we need big wildlife foundations to say they want to see X number of wolves on some reservation that where they're untouchable and are protected. Yeah, and then we just make our world a weird zoo. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, right. We're all in kind of weird cordoned off barriers. Where right. Like this is where these people go. This that is where, where people, people ha- you know, have let go of that fear and that belief that the wolf is this interloper mm-hmm. and this, you know, this. Di- foreign threat. It's not going to kidnap your children. (laughs) (laughs) And are willing, you know, that where folks understand that, I mean, can we seed those kinds of movements to help people in, in local communities where wolves, you know, have been and should be on the landscape and still could be, you know, have that idea that coexistence is possible real close, you know, not, 
not this type of coexistence that says, I'll coexist with you to the extent that I can control you. Mm-hmm. But that there's freedom and it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. I think that, like, I've heard before when I've gone to agency meetings, to com- public meetings for the agencies to come in and stuff, there's a guy from Minnesota who, who's been there a couple of times and he'll be like, guys, <laughs> I'm from Minnesota. I'm a hunter. I promise you it'll be okay. <laughs> Because wolves were never eradicated from Minnesota. It's the one place that they never were. And, you know, we can look to a place where we can look for some lessons there and see, like, what's been worked out. What do people understand there that they can't grasp in other places? So there's maybe some learning to to be done there. And then, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the answers are. (laughs) Um, Some of these... Like, there's still just a lot of basic misinformation. Like, people who are who are the type of environmentalists who love wolves know a lot about about know a lot about the false myths and stuff. But people who just don't really know anything about it will would will believe nonsense facts. Like, if someone if you told someone who doesn't know anything about wolves, like, oh, did you know they just kill uh, they kill deer for no reason and then they run away. They might be like, oh, okay, I guess they do. <laughs> but, like, that's, you know, that's not true. Right. They kill a large animal and, like, a wolf doesn't eat an elk in one sitting. <laughs> you know, like, they'll, like, leave a carcass, go away, return to it over a period of um, weeks and keep feeding off of it. And then a whole series of other uh, animals will also be feeding off of it. And Anyway, so, like, simple education like that, getting out to people who aren't in the environmental com- community... Um, would be really good to have. Are you saying the environmental community needs people from outside the environmental oh. community? Oh, <laughs> yeah. To get this done? Um, perhaps. <laughs> or to communicate with them. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, because, you know, like, there are people who don't... It's like you might... Someone who doesn't know anything or care at all about wolves, you can convince them about truth about wolves. Someone who already has really strong ideas and reasons for believing those ideas about not liking them, they're harder to convince. So maybe convince the mass public who, like, doesn't know anything. Put some effort there and, like, tell people about stuff. Then kind of change the larger social narrative about what predators mean. That would probably be helpful. So you titled this a piece that you wrote, Wolves Will Eat Your Borderlands? Borderlines. Oh, borderlines. Yeah. Meaning that... Um, well, that had to do with the what I think is the, when I thought about it, extraordinarily radical act of reintroducing wolves into the Yellowstone National Park in the 90s. Because now, as we've seen the huge conflict come up against it, um, and also knowing the history of how extraordinarily opposed to wolves the general national perspective was before that like they were just re-releasing an animal that is a direct threat to capitalist notions of private property they're like all right you call you went to the whole work for a few centuries of colonizing an entire nation of like doing a mass genocide or attempted genocide of like doing all this terrible stuff and then building it into a big livestock farm and a big like that feeds a bunch of cities 
you, we went to all this work, and now, like, screw you guys, we're just gonna re-release the wolves right back into it, and their one goal is apparently to, like, eat all of your property. <laughs> they're, like, radical, they're chaotic, they do not care about fences, they don't care about borders. They wear balaclavas. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like, obviously, like, wolf, like, cattle depredation by wolves is a very tiny thing, but it will still happen. It will definitely happen. Yeah. They will go for easy prey, especially if you leave a bunch of carcasses in a pit somewhere. They'll probably definitely go for that. Um, but, like, they might. They will be a threat to your private property, not an extraordinary one, but but some amount. And they will, like, they will eat things that you want to kill if you're a hunter. They will do things that... They will go places you don't want to go. So they're... It's just such a chaotic thing to, like, throw back into this intricately composed gridline of demarcated property and ownership and hierarchy. It just like yeah. <laughs> throw some wolves in there, mix it up. Mm-hmm. It seems like a wild thing to do. So I found a lot of inspiration from that action, from what they can accomplish there. Right now, you're writing for Everyday Feminism. That's only online. Is that right? Yes, it is. And recently, I think earlier this month, you published an article that is one of the points you make is that. There is nowhere people can sit still for a second and not have to answer to anybody. Mm-hmm. And that really struck me um, because as a brown woman living in an incredibly white city, I feel like that all the time. Mm-hmm. And when I do get to go out to Mount Hood National Forest or other public lands... I have some sense that I I can sit still. And so there's, I think, an immense value there (laughs) that serves marginalized communities that public lands do and Mm -hmm. that, you know, getting people into those places and helping folks be familiar with that and enjoy and understand their connection to that and the benefits to their, you know, lived experience of having that space and being able to commune in that way um, is really valuable, and the idea that we should be locking it up in conservation easements mm-hmm. um, and keeping you know people out unless they're you know perfectly trained up to leave no trace. You know, Do you even understand what that means? Though it's not just not littering. <laughs> <laughs> I had a man yell at me once about that. Uh, <laughs> Tell me I didn't understand what it meant, really. <laughs> yeah, um, but I did. You know, what was the title of that article? This uh, article is called Here's Why the Land Privatization Movement is a Feminist Issue. And it was about kind of helping people understand that complicated idea about um, our history with public lands, what they really are and what they mean. Um, And then also how, like, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. There's a lot of priorities and it, it it's maybe easy to kind of feel like environmental concerns are this thing that kind of falls by the wayside when it's like people are being deported, people are being held, you know, like, what do we do? But also it's something that I think is an important priority to keep in mind is this really massive thing that holds all these other problems that we're dealing with inside of it. Um, And so we should not be lulled to forget about the fact that it's happening. So I was trying to explain how... The conflicts of private land and public land have a lot to do with colonization, um, how they're stolen land, how selling off our land to private corporations is not great, 
but also just that um, like the point you just brought up that the right to exist unharassed it should be a right it shouldn't be a privilege and right now it's hard for many people in society to ever get a chance to exist unharassed or without fear Um, but for some people being able to go to public lands is a respite from that but still there's not good enough access to them Um, but also what I was thinking about that when I was thinking about in that article was that um, our public lands aren't just a place where we can go to like hang out which is really valuable and great or rest or to imagine things looking differently they're a place where you're allowed to be to protest (laughs) like you can protest on private property but it's a lot easier to be removed from there (laughs) Um, public lands are really important because you can gather people there and refuse to move you know, like a lot of the um, Dakota Access Pipeline protests have used public land to be on. A, lo- a lot of protests use public land to take up space on and and to uh, leverage that that right that we should have and sometimes have, and some people have, and some people don't really end up having. But like, there's a little more uh, legal leverage to like take up space there for political purposes and to try and like execute. Um, mass social change with people power so like it's really important to have public space for that purpose Mm -hmm. and it's really scary to imagine that that idea being taken away because if everything is just private property like where are we supposed to go to complain about anything we can't gather you know like where are people supposed to gather to have free assembly I I don't know where that would take place and we would all just be arrested that may happen. <laughs> that may happen anyway. I'm prepared for us all to be arrested. I don't think it's going to be. Yeah. I don't think it's off the table. Well, anymore. I mean, and that was also my call to action in this article was that, I mean, as we know, certain people are more likely to be arrested than other people always, and people are more at risk in social movements and in protests. So I think that people who have more privileged should really be ready to go, like, lie down in front of Earth Movers, you know, or, like, do more radical bodily, physical protest acts and put yourself up at risk um, when you know your own body is potentially less susceptible to state violence than other people's bodies are, to be really willing to accept that that is going to be necessary. And you can't just think of it as someone else's fight and someone else's body or physical life at risk heavy stuff (laughs) well what I can say what has been interesting about working on this podcast is that you know there's an immense body of work from the environmental movement in the United States of America alone and you know there's a lot of like big historic iconic figures there's you know, there's big campaigns, there's big wins, there's big visibility, and it has definitely come a long way from, even from Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt is an incredibly flawed individual, and I won't get into that now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, mm-hmm. theoretically, um, we are in a better position today than we ever have been as a movement. I think we have some really significant challenges to overcome and I think a lot of them are internal actually I don't think it's all about who's out there trying to destroy the environment that we love so much mm-hmm. I think it's what have we not acknowledged about the inner workings of this movement that are actually 
kind of hamstringing us mm-hmm. and setting us up for maybe just outright failure if we're not if we don't rectify this stuff. But what do you think has changed? I mean, do you agree with me that we're in a better position? And do you have any highlights, um, maybe especially around the social justice piece? I mean, I think more people than ever are recognizing the difference between conservation and environmental justice or just like preservation and justice and more people than ever are starting to realize the intersections of these ideas and that we can't have an environmental movement that's not about economic inequality and that's not about ending white supremacy like none of that works it has to be involved with that I feel like that those ideas are gaining traction in ways that they didn't before so that's good um hopefully but also it's hard because I feel like I've spent a lot of my life just like standing on street corners with a small group of people yelling about something and you know we can yell outside of a bank and tell people to move their money and to defund a pipeline but like they haven't (laughs) and we can like yell at people in the I think Norway did okay yeah (laughs) Norway thanks Norway Um, I don't know, like, I feel still, like, I, I'm, I'm unsure where to go sometimes because I still feel like even when you're with a lot of good-minded people who have done a lot of internal work and are starting to, like, address internalized biases and oppressions and stuff and build a better movement, we're still just, like, yelling at brick walls that are just gonna, like, stomp down on the world. Um, but then even, but then also I feel like that's not true because people... Like, I also then believe... I really believe in people power. (laughs) Like, I really believe in um, mobilizing masses of people together to, like, have a revolution and make change. And, like, if you've ever been in a protest and taken over a street with, like, thousands of people yelling together, like, that's when you're like, oh, that's why this is so scary. (laughs) You know, this this feels really good and this feels really possible and I believe in this. So, I don't know. There are both of those things. Like, young people who are our age are starting to come to grips with the fact that, like, their parents and they were lied to about communism. <laughs> or, like, that, like, socialism isn't, like, scary, um, totalitarian, um, everyone wears the same gray uniform ideas. Like, people are starting to, like, recognize that, oh, this is working in other places in the world and we have a terrible, terrible world in the United States where people die because they can't crowdfund their own healthcare, you know, and like people are recognizing that and people are also like connecting those ideas to more, uh, to greater issues than understanding that like climate change is a super impending problem. <laughs> um, so like the, 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 the severity and the like nearness of that is I think more apparent to a lot of socially engaged youngish people um and so you know like people are all like yay bernie sanders which is whatever and has its has its own problems and whatever but the fact that people were ready to like someone who had the word socialist in their descriptor is a pretty big change what does socialist public lands management look like maybe can you imagine that it just popped into my head as an interesting concept 
Um, yeah, well, like I wrote an article Because what we have right now is what? Capitalist public yeah. funds management. Environmental communism. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's like, so public lands are this one weird little model where like we have a little bit more people shared public ownership than in other places. Like our public lands are managed by agencies, but they're held in trust for us by those agencies and the people actually own them. So it's like a beginning of a model in which we do have a mass public ownership scheme for forests and like... But we don't have mass public access. No, we don't. And the right to like the best access and to extraction is still reserved for the capitalists. Yeah. So... It's true and it's not perfect, but like there's a little bit of that. There's a nugget of an idea there. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't like my answer to everything is just like materialist socialist revolution, <laughs> and then we'll figure all the rest of it out. But like, no, I don't have all the specific answers, or the I don't I don't know. I don't have an idea. <laughs> well, this has been super fun. I love talking to you. Do you have a couple of reading recommendations for folks that are listening to this podcast around kind of this future of the movement and how do we mature the movement? Um, and what we need to start getting better versed at if we want to have a just um, um, environmental community and goals. Yeah, well, um, so one person uh, who's a biologist is Christina Eisenberg, who wrote a book, uh, Coexistence, is in the title, Coexistence, um, but it's about the difficulty of coexistence and what it would mean for us to have predators in the West in ways that we haven't had in a long time. And it's really awesome. And she's just, like, a really cool biologist. She was, like, a single mom in Montana and saw wolf tracks and, like, nobody believed her. And then she went and investigated her herself. And then she eventually became a biologist herself and, like, wanders around in the Alaskan wilderness tracking wolves <laughs> Uh, is this it? The Carnivore Way? Yes, Carnivore Way. Coexisting yes. with and conserving, <laughs> coexisting with and conserving North America's predators. Yeah, it's available on Amazon. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Someone who is good to read is Walida Amarisha. She wrote the um, Why Are There No Black People in Oregon? Oh and yeah. She did that as a conversation project with Oregon Humanities. And I saw her speak about that, and she's written other stuff, um, but she is a a person writing important things about how, like, I feel like those ideas, we have to understand our environment is not separate from our social history and our political history. So if you want to understand the environment of Oregon, like, it's not, you just, you don't just read, like, the uh, Oregon geology book. Like, (laughs) you also have to understand the social history and to figure out how those things interwork with each other. Um, and then her ideas uh, with other writers and um, about Afrofuturism and, like, sci-fi writers and stuff have gave me some of the great ideas about, like, oh, how do we work on reimagining stuff? Like, uh, like she talked about when I saw her, like, okay, why is it that people are willing to read a story where they'll imagine living on Mars, but they can't imagine a world without police? <laughs> You know, and like so when you hear pretty basic questions like that, you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you're right. How do we figure out how to like reimagine the things that are so socially ingrained in us? And then that idea about like the public land spaces be space, being spaces that are free of the oppressive 
capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal institutions that like make up our lives and are embedded in everything we do and move around, um, they offer us a chance to be more imaginative, perhaps, and to like see ideas and have glimpses of different futures in a new way. Ooh. So I think that's cool. <laughs> also, I feel like my recommendations for reading are like not about environmentalism, right? It's like another book that helped me a lot in my wolf research was The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America by Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And that was about like how language criminalizes people. Um, and that's how I learned to see that same rhetoric in terms of how we view animals. And so that's just another way in which we have to, like... We're animals. Right. Like, <laughs> like stop, like, um, insisting on these binaries and borders that designate what's what and what's this and, like, intermix what we conceive of as environmental possibilities. And All right. Do you want to just tell us where we can read more of your work or follow you? Yeah, you can... I have a website, it's just my name, so it's www.kimberlyfantry.com, that's Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y-F-A-N-S-H-I-E-R, and that will lead you to other places. I have a blog that's thevanduzercorridor.com, where you can find stuff too, and you can like Google the phrase and you'll find it, um, or on Everyday Feminism, and ranting about things on social media. <laughs> As you famously said on Twitter, I love the YMCA. I do. It's really good. <laughs> All right, that was EOC contributor Courtney Ray's conversation with Kimberly Fancheer. I really love the connections that, that Kimberly draws between the history of European settlement of the West and the current fight over wolf conservation. As Kimberly states in the interview, we aren't getting the full picture if we don't look at the complete historical and societal situation. If you'd like to learn more about Kimberly's writing and check out some of her reading recommendations, you can head on over to the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC115. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, you can subscribe to the EOC podcast via iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or just about anywhere where podcasts are distributed. If you really want to show your support for the show, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes, which helps us reach new people with this important content. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by Courtney Ray and edited by me, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.